welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking stories with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. I'm pleased today to have as my guest, Kristen Robinson. She is the owner, um, operator of Stage Naked, her own business as an interpretive consultant and trainer. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Tim. Nice to be here. And are you in Connecticut right now? Yes, I am. Did I say it's that? Not right? quite, you did. You did. I, and I was just going to say, it's not quite the paradise that Hawaii can be, but we are in the midst of three of the most gorgeous days we've had all summer. So I'm going to thank you for sending a little bit of the Hawaii magic this way. Well, we're we're having one of the rainiest years we've ever had. <laughs> And uh, oh, no. well, no, it's not bad because usually it's sunny all morning and then mid-afternoon it turns cloudy and rains and sometimes it rains all night. But if you're a coffee farmer, you just smile when it rains because uh, and we're coffee farmers. Well, let's dive in and talk a bit. Um, we have not actually met face to face before. So this is the first time we've gotten to chat in person. We've exchanged emails a couple of times, but did you grow up in Connecticut or is this uh, where you landed? This is where I landed. Um, I am originally from the Pacific Northwest. And to this day, I consider myself an Oregonian. But we moved around a lot in life. And a job brought me to Connecticut. And I've been here since. And what part of Oregon were you in? I was born in Oregon City, Oregon. That's where my, my father and mother's family uh, were from towns right across the river from one another. He was from Oregon City. She was from Westland, uh, and over the course of our family's, or no, time, uh, we started in Oregon, moved to Arizona, where my sister was born, then back to Oregon to be close to family. We did Washington, we did California, and when I graduated high school, uh, I kind of continued the trend of moving around, and I did study abroad in London because I was a theater student and they had great theater training. And then I came back to California until it was time to move to New York. And it just kind of continued like that for me. I've been back and forth to California a few times. Uh, so it's probably home as much as any place, but I've been in Connecticut for 15 years now. When you did theater training, was that at a university or at a theatrical training organization? Uh, I did my theater training at a university. I went to school thinking I was going to get a business degree or do something really responsible. And uh, the bug bit. So I switched majors at some point over to theater. And when I went to school in London, that was also um, in a university. It was at Middlesex University, but they actually had a really good theater program. So I was able to do a semester there. And theater... Yeah. Uh is a pretty good background for what what you're doing these days. How, which came first, uh, the jobs in tourism or the work or training in interpretation? How did that happen? The work in interpretation came first. I had left New York. I had decided, so I'd been in New York for, I don't know, a lot of years, pursuing theater as a profession. And I had ultimately decided I will love theater to my dying day, but I did not want it to be my profession. I wanted it to be something that I could do purely just projects that captured my interest. So I moved back to California 
and was going to uh, get my master's. And while I was, I actually took a year uh, back in California, reestablishing my residency. Uh, and it was while I was doing that, one day I was walking downtown Sacramento and I walked by our historic site, which is Sutter's Fort State Historic Park. And all of the costume docents were there doing their thing. And I thought, well, this looks fun. And I walked in and spent a lot more time than I thought I would. And as I was leaving, I thought, this is everything I love about theater. It's everything I love about teaching. No homework, no grading. I get to research and learn. I get to watch people's faces light up when the penny drops for them and they make that connection. I didn't have the word interpretation yet, but I just knew that this was the thing that that really spoke to me. So as I as I did go back to school, I also started training as a docent and that kind of took me down an interpretive path. It led to actually getting my first interpretive job at that same historic site. Uh, and then as time went on, I, I started off as a frontline interpreter. I think I will in my heart remain a frontline interpreter always, but our, our ranger, our lead ranger, she was both a, a law enforcement ranger and an interpretive ranger. She unfortunately began a, a five-year cancer battle. And as a senior park aide, I got tapped on the shoulder and asked to take over one of the programs. So I actually bought uh, Lisa Broku's book about interpretive planning, because all of a sudden I had to interpret a plan. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, but it was my first introduction into supporting interpreters that way, sort of backstage. And while all this is happening, and I'm deepening kind of my awareness of interpretation and all that, I meet a friend of a friend who hears me talk about my work at the fort and my work with interpreters, and she sees how animated I'm getting. She says, okay, if you love this work this much, you need to think about taking it on the road as a tour director. And she told me about her company and she told me the kind of work tour directors did. Uh, and I thought this is an amazing way of doing what I love and being able to see a little bit of the world while I do it. And so that was the beginning of my pivot into, into tourism. And I did the site and the tourism work for probably the next five years, it was because they're both, they were both seasonal activities and they complemented one another perfectly. So I would finish my, my work at the fort and then it was time to go to France. I would finish my work in France and it was time to come back to the fort. It worked beautifully for a long time. Well, I'm feeling really sorry for you having to go to France to do some work. Wow. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was amazing. When you were doing tourism in France, you were on river boats? No, at the time I was doing motor coach tours. Well, motor coach. As time went on, um, we didn't have river boat tours when I was when I was still running tours. They came later. Uh, by the time the river boats were around uh, and really starting to grow, that was when I transitioned off the road and into the office. And I ended up being the the tour director manager. So I worked with all the tour directors doing riverboat tours and we launched some on the Seine while I was there. We had tours on the Danube, on the Rhine. Uh, so while I worked with that team as, as their kind of support and mentor and coach, uh, I never actually ran those tours myself. Yeah. It was, it was a cruise director manager that got, got us involved in doing the training in Seattle. And he talked about the unique challenges of that, that sometimes he would 
have a tour going up the inland passage to Alaska and the tour guide he had hired or cruise directors, I think they called him, would get off at a phone and say, I've decided to leave and I'm not going to finish the tour. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. And he, he said wow. a few times that I actually flew to catch a can and got on a boat and I finished the tour because the show had to go on. But uh, I thought, what a unique setting to be doing training management and all of that. A situation like that is actually responsible for how I got into the industry, not because somebody walked off tour, but because somebody was on tour and broke her leg oh. and could not run the tour. And I got the phone call. I'd been in conversation with this one tour operator and I got the phone call and they said, we can, we can do some shuffling so that you can get destination training, but are you ready to step on a plane? And uh, later on, I would understand how common that is and how quickly you have to shuffle, shuffle the cast, as it were, because it is live theater in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you had many years of doing that management of uh, that kind of training and preparation. And you left that to go private. Was the pandemic a trigger on that or? It was a trigger. I think I was on this path anyway. So when I went into the office, uh, you know, when I left the road still loving what I did, which I think is the, a good time to transition when you're still really excited about the work, uh, because I could, could translate that excitement to working with the interpreters that were still doing the job. And I should I should say, interpretation as a concept isn't really pervasive in my corner of the industry. Uh, there are certainly some people who got CIG training, who had heard of Freeman Tilden. Uh, the entire time I was working in the office, we would do big company meetings once a year with a lot of professional development, always trying to broaden the awareness of interpretation. And I led some of those trainings myself. But uh, the tour director role, while the best of them, I think, are intuitively using the tools of interpretation, um, I think it's an area that I have just been very passionate about kind of raising some awareness. There's this thing, the certified interpretive guide, there's these principles, there's these books, you know, there's ways that tour directors can deliver, we call it commentary in that part of the business. Um, you know, they there's ways that we can be more effective, that we can great, create greater opportunities for our visitors to connect with sites. Uh, so I call them interpreters because that is the interpretive role but they would call themselves tour directors, tour managers. Sometimes they call themselves program managers. And in addition to the, the interpretation, they're also handling all the customer service. They're handling the logistics. They're making sure people have food they can eat and the hotel rooms are right. And the, you know, working with their driver, if the, if the um, you there's gonna be construction and now you can't take your preferred routing for the next day and you have to rearrange. So. They're problem solvers and customer service reps and interpreters. It's a complex, rewarding, wonderful job. And I derailed myself. But you asked me a question about, oh, the pandemic. So when I went into the office, it was common knowledge. My passion was bringing interpretation skills to my teams. And I always got to do that. But partway through, I had demonstrated some skill with some of the operational elements and I got asked if I would take a new role that was more operational. So I had fewer tour directors I worked with. 
I learned more about the scheduling team and flying people all over the world to go to work and, and some of that aspect. And it was a privilege to learn it, but I recognized it was carrying me farther and farther away from the thing that I loved. So I had a wonderful boss. We were already talking about pivoting me back in the direction of interpretation. And we were kind of putting that plan together. And then the inter then the pandemic hit. And that was when, I mean, the whole company, it was international tourism. It got squashed flat. No one went anywhere for a year. And most of us got furloughed, including myself. And it was an opportunity, even though I had originally had no intention of leaving, it was an opportunity to really reflect. And I got my CIGT and I'm my CIT. And um, eventually I made the full pivot into working for myself, doing this work, really working with people and sites on interpretive skill building. And I have been happy as a clam, even though I really do miss the old work sometimes and I miss all of my tour directors, uh, all of my team. What a wonderful group of people that I was so blessed to work with. I still hear from them. Uh, sometimes they say, hey, are you coming back? But more and more they say, hey, do you still love what you're doing? So, well, that's great. I I just always hope when someone goes through a transition that it's a sustainable transition that you know it works for you. Um, we went through that. We when we left NAI in 2012, Lisa and I still had uh, three or four years before we were fully having enough income through all the various means that you get it in your senior years. Uh, to make it work. And we live in one of the most expensive places on the planet. And it uh, <laughs> it works with a lot of different moving parts. As you know, I continue to train CIGs virtually as you do. And uh, it's, a, it's a component of our income. It's, and way back when we first discussed the Certified Interpretive Guide credential, we, we talked about, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody who actually has kind of advanced interpretive skills became a trainer. And so one of the things we identified is that there's about a quarter of a million plus people doing interpretive work in the United States as a docent, a volunteer, a seasonal worker, a full-time worker. And that when you add all those numbers up, there's no way NAI as a staff was going to train them. It had to be create, you know, uh, literally a army of trainers that would get out there and do it, hopefully making some money for themselves or helping their agency get everybody trained. But I, in Hawaii, it's really challenging to sell training. And part of the conflict is that the resource is so overpowering, people will go on a tour in Hawaii and it won't be a great guided tour activity, but the experience is so unique to them and so wonderful, they'll leave and glow about it. And when we've trained local guides here, we hear from their company managers later, well, they left me, they got a credential and moved on to a better job. And so we find that a little challenging. Do you get resistance at all in your communities of, of training to the if you, if we train people up, maybe they won't stay with us. I don't run into that particular piece of pushback, um, although I do know it's out there. I talk to other trainers and some of the, the some of the clients that they're they're working with. That's definitely a concern. 
Um, what I hear more often is, well, I'm already doing well enough. Why do I need a credential? Uh, and it kind of depends on who I'm talking to, how I answer that question. So I, if I'm speaking to a tour director uh, who kind of gets it about what interpretation is, but they think they're doing a good job. The thing to remember about tourism, and I think you actually had this conversation with uh, Gabby Plumiso a few weeks ago, the people who are the tour directors and the city tour guides, it is a tip-based industry. And so you might get a day rate, but the majority of your money comes from gratuities. And, you know, and so you get very, very immediate feedback in both guest feedback, maybe it's a review on TripAdvisor or it's a form they fill out at the end of the two-week tour. Uh, and, and you'll learn a little bit about how well the guests actually thought you did. Uh, but you also get these little envelopes at the end of the tour that let you know financially how happy they were with you. And there's plenty of tour guides that I have met in different capacities in my life, and they're doing fine. But having worked with, at one point, I had over 100 different people. My territory was all seven, all the seas. Uh, it was Cuba, Central America, South America, and all the riverboats of Europe. Wow. I had over 100 performance reviews to do one year. I saw a lot of different tour directors doing the, the work in a lot of different ways. There's so many styles of being an interpreter in any venue. But what I did see without question, the people who were using what I considered an interpretive toolkit, they had the best guest reviews. They anecdotally thought that the income that they could earn in the field was magnificent, which tells me they were being tipped well, at least what they considered to be well. Based on all of the evidence, there is a real world immediate financial lift to learning to help people connect to sites the way interpreters you know, can do. The other thing for a tour director, it's also your schedule is based on your ratings very commonly. So what the guests write in those little forms at the end of a tour depends on, will affect how much work you get the next year. So there's a second reason to not just do a good job with your guests, but to knock it out of the park with your guests. And people who take tours, they know when the tour is good and when the tour is exceptional. And if you can be one of those tour directors that's exceptional, you will do well in the industry and the guests will do well and the organization will do well. And I tend to get a little, um, I can't, I, I, what's the word for what I am? I get a little excited about interpretation. I, I have said more than once, I think what we do can change the world. We just do it one conversation at a time. And to me, done well, that's what over-the-road tourism can do as well. We're helping break down barriers between us and them. We're giving people points of connection with culture and with nature in parts of the world maybe they had no idea about, but maybe they had a, a, an opinion about that wasn't based in truth. And then they go and they, they get new information and they have a visceral experience that stays with them. So when you can do that for a guest, you're, you're doing good on so many different levels. I know in, in Europe, on the few tours I've been on in Europe, they're, they've been on the ground and they've been what I would call drag and brag tours where the guide gave us just an unbelievable number of dates and factual information about where we were. And in fact, we, were, we did training in Tuscany, Italy, 
and had people from about eight countries take the certified interpretive trainers course at one point. And the guy who invited us there was doing bicycle tours in Europe. And oddly, his office was next to ours in Fort Collins, Colorado. He said, would you, would you like to go to Italy with us and do some training over there? And we said, well, that's expensive. We can't do that. And he said, oh, he says, I package tours. I Expensive. I, I know how to handle that. And he, he contacted us the next day and he said, I was a stay at a spa in Tuscany, World Heritage Valley, $105 a night. That includes the meals. I'm going, really? <laughs> and he said, sure. He says, you know, we use them year round as a, a place to take people. So they give us a, a good price when we need to use them for some other purpose like training. And it ended up being really good. But he had said, people love our bicycle tours. But sometimes they say, your guide talks too much or talks too little or gives us too much information and, and it doesn't, the story isn't there. So that brings me to that question. Uh, when did you first take the guide course? Who did you take that with? Oh my gosh, my, my ranger 22, 23 years ago you know, now that you're asking, I'm trying to remember if that was when it we got the certification or if it was later. It's a long time ago. You know, the program is only yeah. 23 years old. So that had to have been one of our first group of trainers that uh, were out on the ground doing that. I do not recall enough about the overall training, but I do remember going through it because uh, it, uh, it was a piece of our overall docent onboarding. But beyond that, I do not recall. But I remember that it, it I got it. I was very lucky. I got this at the very outset of my career. Uh, and it just made complete and total sense because by the time I was uh, taking that course, one of the things that I had done in my sort of theater life was I had participated in this program called ArtsBridge. And uh, this is a little bit tangential to both my theater work and my interpretive work. But it's a place where they touched before I knew what interpretation was. And I was working with a group, a mixed group of kids, all of whom had different special needs. Uh, everything from some more extreme autism to uh, some of the emotional impact of chronic homelessness. There were some learning disabilities, a whole mixed group of children. And ArtsBridge was designed to bring artists of different kinds into the classroom. And one of the things that I, I worked with this woman's class for two semesters in a row. And I was able to watch them light up as they were able to get involved in things, as they were able to start bringing the story to life. And, you know, it was it was theater. So we were doing lots of physical activities as well as verbal storytelling. So lots of different ways of communicating story. And it's just, I have never forgotten working with these kids and the difference that participating in the creation of a story it was a co-creation through with the entire class and me and the teacher and the aides, they transformed. In fact, if I can, if I can just squeak in a tiny little story about the power of this, we had been doing an exercise in co-creation, co-creating a story. And I was taking advice or, or story elements on the fly from the kids and we were acting it out. And there was one little boy and he was upset that I didn't, uh, take all of his story suggestions. And I said, look, I remember what I think they were. I'm going to go home next week when I come back. I'll write it up. You proofread it for me. 
And if I got it right, we will then act out your story. I do this thing. I come back in and he runs right up to me. He says, do you have it? And I said, yes, here it is. And he ran over and he sat down and I see him proofreading my work. In the meantime, teacher comes up to me. She's like, what just happened? I said, oh yeah, I didn't take all of his things. He's proofreading. She said, no, 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 no. He has severe dyslexia. He hates reading more than anything in this world. Oh. He wanted his story. He wanted his contributions to see the light of day. And I think about this often because nowadays, one of the things, whether I'm teaching a CIG or whether I'm doing an outside, more dialogic-based course for a, a private client, one of the things we talk about is the importance of interaction and the importance of bringing your audience in as co-creators of an experience. And I will always remember this little boy, but also this is kind of what led me on to the, the path of my own kind of personal contribution, perhaps to, um, to interpretation, this idea of sticky storytelling, where we're using interpretive tools and story tools, and maybe a little from my theater life, in order to co-create stories together. We're using interactivity, we're using interpretation and we're making it memorable. And I've read different things, you know, I don't have a bunch of data at my fingertips to be completely transparent, but anecdotally, we have an easier time remembering what we participate in, what we contribute to when we do some of the work of its creation, rather than just having knowledge spoon-fed to us. And I, I don't know too many interpreters that would disagree with that statement. So um, it's all powerful. And the more we draw our audiences into the interpretation, the story, the easier time they have remembering what they have experienced with us in our interpretive programming. Yeah, I, I think the research supports what you're saying. I don't remember the statistics uh, and can't cite the sources anymore, but any of the cognitive psychologists would tell you that, uh, you know, when you talk to people a day or two later, you'll be lucky if they remember anything you said. If you just talk to people, if you have a conversation with them, you ask questions and they answer them. It'll be a higher percentage. If you actually do things with them, it'll go way up from that. And uh, interactivity is essential. And yet, I still see a lot of guides and interpreters who are talking heads, and that's too bad because lecturing in the out of doors doesn't make it better. I still remember we did our very first CIG course ever as a test in La Paz, Mexico, and about half of our class were indigenous guides. You may have heard me tell this with Gabby uh, Plumaso, but uh, I'll never forget one of the guides, Leo, who his theme was so powerful and his ability to, to convey it was so good that I still remember it. I still remember his entire program. And so when you say sticky storytelling, what do you think the elements of making it sticky along with interactivity? There's a couple of things. And, and kind of my approach to this comes from having delivered week-long and two-week-long tours. So when you do that, whether it's a week or two weeks, every time you get on the mic, it's different. It's you're telling that day, that section's stories. So you'll go a week or two giving new interpretation all the time until you go back to the beginning and then you repeat it. So one of the things that you notice very quickly in long form tours 
people get to the end and they've absorbed so much, they can't remember the beginning. They have to go back through their photos. So one of the first things tour directors, or one at least I'll say, one of the first things I was trained to do is, oh, give them a little recap. Give, remind them all the fun stuff they did. And that works. It's classic conclusion strategy, right? You, you know, do that sum up of your themes and your sub themes. But one of the things that I found really helpful was instead of just thinking themes and sub themes, I would think in terms of subplots. So for tour directors, we inherit an itinerary. We don't build it from scratch. What we are typically, and we're typically given some kind of training or some kind of ideas of what to talk about, but then we build our own commentary. So I had a two-week tour uh, in the northwest of France, and there were three main sub buckets of information. I'll, I'll use that word for right now. We talked about castles and kings. We talked about impressionist painters, and we talked about World War II. And occasionally we would have some random thing happen, like we would go to visit a bell factory uh, or we'd go to a wine tasting that didn't necessarily touch anything else. I started noticing that if I thought about my tours the way I thought about episodic television, some big cast of lots and every episode doesn't touch base with every single character. So they have to use certain storytelling techniques to bring the elements from a couple of days ago into the present day's touring because part of the job of a tour director is to take this tour of disparate elements and make it feel like one cohesive thing. So from interpretation, I instantly thought theming and I have played with both theme statements and I've played with theme questions governing the overall itinerary. But then you have to you have to break it down because there's these different threads that you follow. And that's where storytelling really comes in. Whether you're using kind of these devices like tune in next time when we will find out what Patton really thought about, right? Or do you remember two days ago when we left Louis the 14th, right? You know, you use some of those devices to bring people back to the bits of the story that they've already experienced because now you have to pick it up again. Uh, so there's there's that kind of a thing. There's also finding a protagonist. It's not something that we talk a lot about in a lot of the interpretive literature. Storytelling gets mentioned. And I think Sam Hamm in one of his books in um, Interpretation Making a Difference on Purpose, I think he has a bit talking about if you want to make science more accessible to lay people, follow a human. Well, that works anywhere. Follow a human. F find a protagonist. It can be a rock formation that is watching the world unfold around it. You need some kind of a protagonist, some kind of a narrator to help you string the elements together. So using tools like this, as well as a robust interpretive toolkit, when you combine all of that, you, you take a story of its many elements and you can weave it into one cohesive whole um, in a way that plays upon our tendencies to turn everything in life into stories. It makes it easier for us to remember. And at the end of the day, that was my goal, was I wanted people to get to the end of a tour, whether it is one week, whether it is three hours, whether it is two weeks. I wanted them getting together, feeling like they could touch back in their memory all of the important highlights, not just the things I thought were highlights, but the places where they had made connections. So that was sort of the inception of this idea of sticky storytelling, um, I personally think the very best storytellers, they're interpreting, and the very best interpreters, 
they are robustly using stories. I've just tried to formulate some strategies about how to take a lot of information and turn it into this kind of a format. I like the alliteration of sticky storytelling, and I like the the idea that it's that what we're trying to do is uh, stick it. One of the terms we use sometimes is to say, if if I do a really good job of provoking or inspiring people, I create a Velcro spot on their brain that doesn't go away. And it has them now interested in something they didn't necessarily expect to be interested in. And everything that I say or that in the future that comes along sticks to that Velcro and they build uh, their knowledge, their interest, their passion for that. Uh, oddly, my dad was a lawnmower salesman many years, 40 years after going to college. I was in Death of a Salesman with uh, Community Theater, and I would stand backstage and cry as I listened to Willie Loman talking about being a salesman and be aware that my dad was a storyteller and that when I would go with him, he would drive me nuts because I'd be going, come on, let's go home. <laughs> Wait, I've got to talk to this guy. And I was really aware that his stories were a fabric that included his industry is what he sold, what he did. And that um, part of his ability was that he created these great relationships with people that endured for decades and his business built and he was successful. He had a seventh grade education. And I had the fun of looking at a video of when I was a young park ranger interpreter and listening. I'm going, what am I doing right? And what am I doing wrong? I think I was guilty back then of interpret torture, uh, what we call, and when not knowing when, <laughs> you know, not not realizing that maybe I'd done enough and I need to wind down and, and get back out of that narrative and uh, approach it. So that brings me to the question of stage naked. It's an interesting name. Why did you come up with that? Memorability is the very simple answer. Okay. Um, I had a couple of very sort of vanilla, they're not real words. I'd combined pieces of different words and, and at the very, and I was going to talk with a friend of mine just to get an outside ear. And I ran the, the very vanilla words by her and I could tell that she was kind of not super thrilled with any of them. I'm like, okay, I had this other idea because when you are really excited about your topic and you're sharing it, you put together an interpretive program or a tour or whatever it is, and you want other people to love it. You want people to care about the site. You want people to care about the idea. You know, all of that investment kind of is a vulnerable thing for the interpreter. And for the interpreter, sharing that from that vulnerable place of hoping people will make the connections, it can feel like being on stage naked. So that was how I actually landed on Stage Naked as a title. And as soon as she heard it, she says that, because people will remember it. And I will say, there's two things. <laughs> One of them is that it actually has worked that way. People who meet me and, and hear the name, and then they meet me in another setting. It's like, oh, yeah, I do remember you. And, and conversations have gone from there. And I've I've made some wonderful connections. And I've got a couple of teaching partnerships that are blossoming because people remembered the name. But here's the other thing, and this is a word to the wise to any other entrepreneur trying to come up with a memorable sticky name. 
run a Google search on your name first before you file all the paperwork. Had I done so, I would have learned that typing in stage naked to Google tends to get pole dancing classes. Oh my. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it is what it is. And I've got some SEO to do in my future. But um, no, that's that's how I came up with the name. And I do, I do still really love the name because I do think it speaks to the fact that we care so much, not just about the things we're interpreting, but we care about our audiences. We care so much that, that they hopefully, they've given us their precious time and hopefully they will come away enriched in some way because of what they experienced. Good. Well, I think that's fascinating. I, uh, I remember back in speech class from 50 years ago, them going, well, if you're nervous, just imagine your audience being naked. And I, that's never worked for me. That would be a real distraction to think about that. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Do you do the CIG course in person with groups? I do it in person as well as virtually, more virtually. You and I are both up there on the calendar. I know <laughs> we we usually both have courses up. Um, which do you like better and why? What What's the difference? You know, this is going to sound diplomatic and it's it's less diplomatic and more simply true. I like them both differently. There is an energy to being in the room with students. And I absolutely, I play off that energy. I think they play off that energy. Uh, I can walk around and I can hear sidebar conversations very easily. I like that about the in-person course. I like that the virtual course allows us to reach people who would never be able to take this course otherwise. I have met people that I would never meet otherwise. I, one of my students in my last classes was from Dubai, right? This is, I would never have met this young man. Uh, he might not have ever been able to take this course. I can do different technological things. Uh, different instant word clouds and some fun stuff that, yes, you could replicate that in live, uh, but it's easier to do that particular thing on digital. So they're both different, and I'm deeply grateful for both styles of class. Yeah, when we developed the CIG course, our concept was that it would never be taught online. And when the pandemic came along, uh, obviously, neither of us are at NAI making decisions. And they, practically speaking, had all sorts of state park programs and stuff say, hey, we need this training to continue. We're hiring seasonal workers. We're bringing docents in. Don't. And so they, and they needed the income stream, bluntly. I, it was a value to them as an organization. I'm sure I would have thought that in that direct role as well. Um, and I feel the same way you do. I, I prefer the live courses with students, but here in this part of rural Hawaii, if we offer a course, we don't attract an audience. And the cost of flying to a location to offer the course is challenging. Uh, but the, the guide course, we've had folks from Japan, uh, Canada, Great Britain, Philippines, Russia, Mexico. It's It's been wonderful, Italy. And it's different. And you have to be pretty creative to make it interactive. You have to think of ways to, to add that interactivity. I know I personally, you and I took chatted by this a little bit by email. I personally miss the literature review. I know people complained about it. 
we created it because we felt it was critical to get beginners in the field to understand there's a body of literature out there that's much broader than what's going to happen in this CIG course. And um, when they got rid of it, I continue to use some of the questions at, at end of the day and let the students work over them in breakouts and then come back and discuss it as a big group. And it worked pretty well. I think not as well as when we had the actual lit review because they they actually meant as a group and had to figure out the answer to the questions. We never wanted to make it a go into the room by yourself and remember this information. We always wanted it to be a scavenger hunt in the printed literature that existed. It it does take time out of the course that you might do other stuff too. So when it went away, I, you know, I, we have spoken about this and, and I'm finding that I wish I'd hung on to a copy of the questions because they are great discussion starters. Discussion is one of the key things that I do do in the virtual setting, uh, whether it is having them go into breakouts, whether it is we have a collective conversation in the main room. A lot of times I will, it'll be sort of a, a I'll flip the learning rather than teaching something and then have a discussion. We start off having a discussion. Where, where are you at right now thinking about these things? If I pose this question to you, how would you answer that just based on your own moving through the world? And, you know, I'll play the facilitator. I will throw in little, little uh, insights or little ideas or a quote from one of the, from one of the books. I'm always showing those books and talking about some of the things that you can find in there. So I do try to help shape those discussions. And then of course, we'll move into anything that actually needs to be reviewed and taught. But I find that honestly, just like when I was interpreting, if I get the question right, and I am conscious as a facilitator, they will get at least half, if not two thirds of the information that I need to teach they'll get it into the conversation just because they've been walking around on this planet for 20 to 60 years. So um, I 100% I agree that having those discussions is crucial. It's just, how do we, how do we get it in there? Yeah. I, you know, I love breakouts and bringing everybody back together to kind of analyze what we learned in the breakouts. And of course, I, I would suppose you're finding what I am in the the virtual courses that you have some people that have extensive experience and some that it's totally a new subject to them and they share with each other they teach each other and sometimes they teach me i learn things that i wouldn't have gotten without having that unique individual in the audience who who brings their life history to the the course lisa and i in march will lead a eco tour back to tanzania We've been doing, this will be our 14th trip there um, to East Africa. Um, and those multiple day tours, 12 days, as, as you talk about a longer tour, you talked about what has to go into that. We always try to have an idea of what our theme and sub-themes are and how we tie it all together and um, make it work. What What is your favorite one that you've been involved with I have two favorites, the one that I ran, and then there was one that was part of the portfolio that I 
managed the, the, the TD team. The favorite tour that I ever ran was by Northern France. It was two weeks. We started in Versailles. We went out through the Loire Valley. We went out to Brittany, came back in through Normandy and ended in Paris. Wow. And yeah, it was gorgeous. It was a part of France that I really, really liked Brittany. The culture is very different uh, from, from anywhere else in France. Uh, you can say that certainly about many of the different regions, but Brittany really always spoke to me. Um, I liked the variety. I liked that we talked about World War II. I liked that we talked about, uh, I liked that we talked about art. You know, one of the things that I loved about touring, and I actually didn't really think about this early in my touring career, but people who take group tours, they liked meeting locals, they liked meeting one another, they liked meeting me. So as time went on, it became almost fun to make that into a voyage of discovery. Uh, the company that I worked for, we were very much into helping our guests have explorations that were not all with me or were not all with a local guy, independent time in places. And how could I tee up experiences that they might go out and have and then bring them back together and get them talking about what they saw that day. And it was it was really fun for me as the guide, honestly, for the same reason you just talked about as a trainer, um, they would see things that I hadn't noticed yet. One time, if I can if I can share just one of the most powerful experiences that I had running this tour, we got a lot of World War II veterans. Uh, not that there were a lot of them, but for the era that I was running tours, I still frequently had World War II actual vets on my tour, whether they had been there on D-Day or came in shortly thereafter, or they'd served in the Pacific Theater. One time I had a Frenchman, and this was his first trip back to France since he had left as a boy. He had left after the liberation. Wow. He himself, yeah. Oh, this this story, you this this should be somebody's film. Some and he shared this with us as he got to know the group. He shared it with me first, I think, to see if he was comfortable. And then he shared more of his story with the whole group. And so the whole group had this very different experience of this tour. I, I, I think I started to say he was Jewish. So when the Nazis moved in, he and his family were, of course, put into a work camp. The men were all put to work building Rommel's wall. When that wall, when the construction was done, the 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 people were told that they were being sent to another work camp. But this man, when he got on the, the train, he looked around and of course, there's old people and there's babies and there's women. And he's desperately trying to convince his family to jump off the train, jump off the moving train. He says something's wrong. And he was right. And he jumped off the train and no one else in his family did. And he never did see them again. He was then found and taken in to a Catholic monastery. They disguised him as one of their own. He ended up giving shaves and haircuts to Nazi officers. He spoke German. He funneled their information to the resistance. And that's what he did for the rest of the war. And when he left, he went to the United States to see relatives or stay with relatives. He had never come back. He'd married an American woman, raised children. This was his first trip back since he'd left as a boy. Mm -hmm. And so not only did I get to you know, have moments witnessing this man have this experience, and then open up about his life to others. There was a moment where we were in Caen, uh, where there was a peace memorial. And it's just all kinds of museum space dedicated to World War II and then the peace efforts afterwards. 
And they always honored veterans and to see them honor him, to see all the people come out of this museum because one of their own had come back to visit. I still get a little emotional thinking about this man and that this was something that I was lucky enough to witness uh, because, because of the work I was doing at the time. Um, and there were other stories like that on this tour. And there always are on tour. The guests are just, they're amazing if you, if you open yourself up to them. I will tell you the most amazing tour I took with my company. You know, I said I, my second one was part of the tours I managed. This was in the Galapagos. And I, and I know that NAI folks have done some training down there in the Galapagos. To tour the Galapagos Islands, you have to have a Galapagano guide, or at least you did when I was there. And we had amazing naturalists. They nailed every interpretive tool. I was just like on the inside cheering the whole time. And then we came, we were going to do a little hike. It's where we should have been able to see flamingos. We came up to an empty pond. And this guy starts talking about flamingos. And I'm thinking, oh, no, because one of the things they tell you in tourism is don't talk about what people can't see. And I'm like, he is going to stand in front of an empty pond and make his first mistake. Tim, I could not have been more wrong because what he did was he interpreted an empty pond about the climate change reasons that there were no flamingos here this time of year. Everybody was riveted and everybody was back on our little tiny expedition boat that evening talking about this empty pond, even people that weren't sure they believed in climate change. Something about that man's interpretation on that day, standing in that place, had them reconsidering. So those were probably my two favorite tours and probably two of my highlight experiences from my time on the road. That's great. I've really enjoyed getting acquainted and learning more about what you're doing. Uh, I wish you well with all you're doing in your face-to-face -face and your virtual training. Uh, I hope our paths cross in person one of these days. Likewise. Thanks for joining us today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Next week, I'll be talking with Susan Strauss. Susan Strauss is very well known for her book, Passionate Facts, Storytelling in Natural History and Cultural Interpretation, and many other books. I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for his beautiful mandolin music on his coffee and cake album, in this case, Buckminster Waltz. I remind you that Lisa Brochu has an interpretive planning course via Zoom. August 21st to 24th, and then on the 25th, she has a contract management course. Learn more at heartfeltassociates.com. I have a certified interpretive guide course coming up September 25th to October 4th, and if you want more information on that, go to interpnet.com to their training calendar. Thanks for joining us today. Have a wonderful